0: Bibles to Mark chapter five as we engage in the next lesson of our ongoing life of Christ study. Uh, we are uh, somewhere midway through this study. We'll continue it for another quarter uh, this, in this in this spring quarter, which should start in March, and uh, with the goal of concluding the life of Christ by the end of May. But tonight we're going to focus on a two-part event in the life of Jesus we're going to be focusing on the healing of Jairus' daughter, as well as the healing of the woman who had the hemorrhaging issue. So both these stories are intertwined in all of the gospel accounts that they appear in. They're in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And it's a story that starts with the Jairus' daughter situation, but gets interrupted by the woman with the hemorrhaging issue, and then returns to the Jairus' daughter situation. So it's an intertwined story. You can't really separate the two uh, completely. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke all have this recorded, but due to the length of the text and the length of our study to cover both stories in one, we're only going to read from one account. Now what's interesting is if you look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Matthew is so much shorter than the others. Matthew's account of these two stories takes nine verses. Mark's takes 23 and Luke's chat takes 17. Matthew has some u- uniqueness to it as well because one thing you'll discover in Mark and Luke's account, uh, Jairus's daughter is sick then Jesus and, and Jesus is going to her house to care for her on the way he's interrupted by this woman who has this hemorrhaging issue and then after t- dealing with her he's back in route to Jairus's house to take care of his daughter when they find out she's dead. But Matthew, Matthew starts with her being dead in the beginning, and it's as though Jairus is seeking for Jesus to come bring her back to life. So there's a uniqueness to Matthew's account. We're going to focus on Mark's account tonight, as as I've done many occasions, uh, because Mark's is the longest of the three accounts, and uh, kind of serves as a good springboard for what we'll uh, for our study. So if you will, turn to Mark chapter 5. We're going to read verse 21 through 43 in his gospel. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. People weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumah, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. What I want to do for our study is start with the healing of the woman with the, uh, the, 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 the bleeding issue. Focus on that, and then we'll transition to talking about the uh, Jairus' daughter situation. But let's take them one at a time, and we'll start with this woman who had the bleeding issue. Now the, the, the first question that I want to answer when I study this story is what was her condition? What, what are we talking about here? What's the issue? Mark chapter 5 and verse 25 says that she had a discharge of blood for 12 years. That's the English Standard Version. The New King James says she had a flow of blood for 12 years. The NIV says she had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. And the New American Standard says she had a hemorrhage for 12 years. The Greek term for this, deorder, this, 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 excuse me, this disorder, it also appears in the Septuagint's version of Leviticus chapter 15 and verse 33. When I say the Septuagint, what I'm talking about is a Greek translation of the Old Testament. It was the, it was the version of the Old Testament that people in Jesus' day typically read because they were more familiar with Greek than they were Hebrew. But the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And oftentimes, when you compare a quote in the New Testament to the Old Testament, it doesn't match the Hebrew that well, but it matches the Septuagint pretty well. So it was a very uh, well-used version of the Old Testament. In that Greek translation of the Old Testament, in Leviticus chapter 15 and verse 33, this same Greek term that's employed here to refer to this woman's issue is used there. Leviticus chapter 15 uh, is a, a chapter that teaches on purification laws related to bodily discharges. And in verse 32 and 33 of Leviticus 15, there's a summary provided. And it specifically says that this is the law for him who has a discharge. This is the law for her who is unwell with her menstrual impurity. Now, I'm not trying to be gross. I'm not trying to be graphic. I'm not trying to be problematic here. But that's... Probably what the issue was, there was a, a menstrual issue going on that was causing her to bleed constantly. And, and there is an actual medical condition um, that is associated with this. I can't pronounce it, or I, I probably could if I went and found it, but um, there is a medical condition known today, and the biggest concern with this is that it, it often leads to anemia. And so this woman has been suffering with this for 12 years. That's a long time to have a bleeding problem. And like as manifested in some other issues for her as well. In fact, I want us to consider as I break the remote legitimately no, I didn't break it, but I gotta put batteries in now. What I want you to consider with me is how this medical issue has affected this woman's life, in particular the consequences it has manifested in her life. So the first one I want you to think about is just the physical consequences. She had suffered under many physicians, the text says. Suffered uh, under many physicians. And also we're told that she could not be healed by anyone. That's what Luke tells us in his account. So this woman has this medical problem and she's going to the experts of the day and they cannot find a solution. She's suffering under the hands of the doctors. Some of us kind of know what that's like. We've had some doctors that felt like you were suffering under their treatment. It's, It's interesting because the Jewish Talmud, that's the rabbinical teachings, the commentary of the rabbis on the Old Testament, basically. The Jewish Talmud offered no fewer than 11 cures for this problem. Some were tonics, others were superstition, like there was one superstition such as carrying the ashes of an ostrich egg in a linen rag in the summer and in a cotton rag in the winter. I, I can't make this stuff up. But there, there were prescribed ways of treating her condition by the rabbis. So she has gone to every expert she can find a solution to, to remedy her, her malady And none of them have resolved it. In fact, that language of her suffering under a million physicians gives the impression that they may have only made it worse. So 12 years, 12 years of this, she has suffered physical consequences with this medical issue. She's also suffered financial consequences. We didn't read this in Mark, but if you go over to Luke's account, Luke specifies that she had spent all her living on physicians she had given up her life savings all of her finances to try to take care of this medical issue and the thing that stands out to me is that this is a society uh, where, where a single woman which we don't specifically know if she's married or not but we'll get to that in a moment if she's a single woman in this society without a, a husband or a child to care for her or to uh, provide for her, she's going to be uh, in a lower uh, income, lower status bracket than the average person. I often think about Ruth and Naomi's situation after, uh, after Naomi's husband died, and after Ruth's husband died, and they came back to Bethlehem, and, and, and they're, they're impoverished. This woman is at that state because she spent whatever resources she did have, they've been spent on her medical treatment. She's also suffered relational consequences. So if you go, if you were to journey back to uh, the book of Leviticus, to the 15th chapter and read that whole chapter and everything it says about the purification laws associated uh, with, with this bleeding issue, you would find out that she can't have contact with anybody. If she's been dealing with this for 12 years, at least with some fair consistency, she has no social life. In fact, as I, I quoted from one commentator on the screen there, if she developed this condition in her early teens, then she would not have been desirable for marriage. Because according to the purification laws of Leviticus chapter 15, as well as statements that, a statement that appears in Leviticus chapter 18, she would have been ceremonially unclean, she would have made her husband unclean just by him having intercourse with her. And so, and and more than likely, this condition is is going to prevent her from having children at this stage of her life. And so, she's not going to be a desirable candidate for a spouse. So when it comes to her friends and family, she's supposed to... uh, and not have contact with people, or she'll make them unclean. So socially speaking, relationally speaking, she's somewhat ostracized. Not completely, but somewhat ostracized. And and if she wasn't married before the problem started, she's going to have a hard time finding someone who would want her as a spouse, because they're not going to be able, she's likely not able to produce offspring for them. So there's some issues here relationally and socially that we we may not know specifically how it affects her or or if it affected her in that regard, but there, there could be some consequences there. Of course, there's the religious consequences as well. So this medical condition rendered her ceremonially unclean. And so she would not have been able to go to the temple. She would not have been allowed in the synagogue. She would have been prevented from engaging in the communal religious opportunities, the feasts, the holy days, the worship, the prayers, the sacrifice, all that. She would not have been able to physically participate in. And so there's going to be some religious um, separation for her, spiritual separation from her community. And then, of course, there would be psychological consequences the, the fact that she is unclean, the fact that she's dealing with this condition uh, w- in a society that thinks that if you're unclean, you've done something wrong. A society that, remember the man born blind, you have a medical uh, condition, you have this problem, you must have sinned to cause it. mindset of society. So there's going to be a feeling of shame uh, that she has to battle with. misery involved in her experience because people who realize that she's dealing with a medical condition that's keeping her separated from her society and her religion, they're going to think she's done something wrong to cause that. And on top of that, she's going to be marginalized in, in this culture. She's already marginalized because she's a female, but marginalized more because she's constantly unclean. And she's going, it's going to, I'm sure, result in her feeling like she doesn't really matter that she's not important, that she she doesn't have a place. So there could be a lot of psychological consequences with this as well. Here's this woman with, with this issue. Her life has to be in shambles. Her life has to be miserable because she has no money. She's suffered physically at the hands of doctors. She's separated from people. She's separated from her fa- her, 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 the spiritual practice of her faith. She's suffering. And it becomes evident how desperate she is for healing when you look at how she approaches Jesus. This, is a, this whole situation of how she comes in contact with Jesus is incredibly unique. Because the first thing you'll notice is she approached Jesus from behind. What does that tell you? Why would she approach Jesus from behind? She doesn't want to be seen. This this woman doesn't want to be seen, confronted. She doesn't want to have questions. She has learned that Jesus heals. But she doesn't want to have to have a conversation explaining what she's dealing with or or, uh, or explaining how long she's been dealing with it, or explaining what caused it, or expl- who knows what. She approaches Jesus intentionally from behind. Now, that may lead some to think that maybe she's timid. But I don't think it's timidity. Because it takes courage to say, all right, I'm gonna try to approach him and touch him." There's an element of courage involved in the fact that you're going to brave the crowds when you're not supposed to have contact with any other people, when you're ceremonially unclean and therefore anybody you touch is deemed unclean. It's going to take courage to enter that city where everybody probably knows who you are and what your condition is. It's going to take courage to maneuver through that crowd to get to Jesus because the text tells us they're, they're crowded in around Jesus. I don't think it's timidity. I do think there's an element of faith here. Think about this. She shows great faith, not just in the fact that she believes Jesus can heal her, but that she believes he can heal her with so little contact. She believes he can heal her without even knowing he's healing her. There's there's a little bit of courage here because she's braving the situation to get to Jesus. And there's some element of faith in that she... We've seen... We've seen... um, the the official from Capernaum, no, the centurion. The centurion says, "Hey Jesus, you don't have to come out to my house. Just say the word, and and you, you'll heal he'll heal my son." You you've seen somebody have confidence in Jesus' ability to heal long distance, to heal just by a word. But this woman is kind of upping that. She believes Jesus can heal without even giving it his attention. And she also believes that he can heal through his clothing because she has approached him with the intent to just touch his clothes. Isn't that fascinating? And and one thing that kind of stood out to me as I was studying the story is this isn't the only time that healing occurs through an inanimate object. So, if you go to the book of Acts in particular, we find out that, um, I think it was Paul who's, I think, that, I think the terminology is handkerchiefs or aprons or something like that, that, that people would come in contact with, would heal through some um, material clothing article type thing. With him, or, or the shadow of Peter—that's Acts five, chapter five and verse fifteen. The uh, inanimate articles with Paul was Acts chapter nineteen, verse eleven and twelve. So there's this this understanding that 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 the the power emanating from the from Jesus in particular extends to the inanimate object of his clothes. There may be a level of superstition involved with that, but, but this, this woman recognizes Jesus' power to the degree that she thinks, if I can just touch his clothes, that's, good. that's all I need. I, I don't need him to lay his hand on me. I don't need his eye contact on me. If I can just touch the clothes, Jesus can do it. So her approach to Jesus, she's coming from behind, she's going for his clothes it's fascinating. There's a level of courage. There's a level of faith in it that is admirable. And it becomes even more admirable, admirable as this plays out because there's a uniqueness to Jesus' response as well. Because the first thing Jesus does is he asks who touched him. Jesus, we're told, feels or perceives, I should say, the power leaving him and healing this woman. But isn't it interesting that he has to ask who touched him? The reason that's interesting to me is because we typically believe that Jesus, even in the flesh, was omniscient. He senses the power leaving him, but he doesn't know where it went. At least, that's what he vocalizes. And so, an argument can be made from this particular story That one of the divine prerogatives Jesus set aside temporarily when he was in human flesh was not just his omnipresence. We know he set aside his omnipresence because he was in a physical flesh and blood body that walked around Palestine. But this this passage gives the impression that Jesus may have set aside his omniscience as well, that he did not know everything all the time. Because Jesus did not know exactly who it was who touched him. But I think there may be bigger reasons why Jesus asked who touched him. Maybe Jesus um, asks because it, it's going to be necessary for this woman who's dealt with this uncleanness for 12 years, it's going to be necessary for this to be a public acknowledgement of her healing. Maybe in order for her to be welcomed back into social interactions, welcomed back into the the religious practices of her day, it was necessary for her cure to be a matter of public knowledge. Or maybe Jesus is asking this in order to get a public admission from her. Not of her wrongdoing or anything like that. But maybe so that there can be a public acknowledgement of faith. Because Jesus is going to be the one who after she confesses that, hey, yeah, I touched you. I'm the one that did it. Your faith has made you well. He's going to be the one to specify, to point out, to acknowledge the presence of her faith. And, and, and so maybe there's an objective here on his part for that crowd around him to see and hear and know what f- true faith is and to hopefully elicit their faith as well. But I think even more important than Jesus asking who touched his garments is what he says to this woman. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. It's easy to overlook the significance of that reference to her as daughter. She is the only woman recorded in our Bibles to have been called daughter by Jesus. And his words... And his use of this title with her provides reassurance, maybe even communicates value to her. A person who's been segregated, ostracized, separated from her uh, family, friends, peers, and Religious family as well. There may be a communication here that she needed that reassured her of her standing with God. Daughter, your faith has made you well. I've already alluded to the, to the pronouncement here of faith and its involvement in her healing. It, it wasn't just that she touched Jesus that caused her to be healed. Because there are other people crowding around him and bumping into him and touching him as well in in this moment. And we're not hearing about all those people all of a sudden go, oh, hey, I don't have a high blood pressure anymore. You know, it's, it's not like just bumping into Jesus made you physically healed. There's more to it than that. Jesus explained to the woman that she had been healed not through the physical touch, but through her faith. Had Jesus not made that clarification, it would be easy for her to assume that, yeah, because I touched him, because I made the effort to come into physical contact with him, I was healed. It's because of what I did that I got healed. And he's letting her know that it's more than just the effort you put in. It's the fact that you believed. It's involved faith. Now Jesus will elsewhere make this that faith was involved in the healing of individuals. He'll say it to Bartimaeus when he healed Bartimaeus of blindness in Mark chapter 10 and verse 52. He'll say it to the uh, uh, sinful woman who anointed his feet at Simon the Pharisee's house in Luke chapter 7 and verse 50. He'll even say it to that single leper who returned from the colony to thank Jesus for healing him in Luke chapter 17 and verse 19. So Jesus would often associate someone's healing with faith. That was a necessary parameter for the healing as well. And also you'll notice that there are times when Jesus refused to perform miracles in certain locations, and it was linked to their lack of faith. The final thing Jesus will say to her is, go in peace. He pronounced peace to her. Now think about Uh, all that we discussed a moment ago about what she's endured and the consequences of her medical condition, peace is the one thing she wants. The biblical concept of peace does not refer to the absence of war or other kinds of trouble, as one author said. To the contrary, it is something that can exist even in the midst of conflict. It is the status of wholeness and well-being because of a right relationship with God. Jesus is telling her to go in peace. He's pronouncing peace in her life, in a life that has been absent peace for a long, long time. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. There was nothing more reassuring to this woman than to hear those phrases at this moment. You know what's really unique about this whole event? Jesus unconsciously healed this woman. This is a whole new element to Jesus' healing power. He can speak it. He can touch it. He can heal from long distance. He can heal in your presence. Now he can heal without even knowing it. In this story, we're, we're given a glimpse of and to just how powerful God is, that he can heal even when he's not consciously part of what he's doing. With that, let's transition to Jairus' daughter now. And we'll come back and bring them together for some points at the end. The raising of Jairus' daughter has this one interesting factor, or a couple of interesting factors to it for me. Now, we don't know the specifics about her illness. We're told in Mark that she's at the point of death. Luke says she was dying. We don't know what's causing it. But there's one interesting detail we know her age. Does anybody remember how old the text said she was? 12. How long had that woman been dealing with a blood flow issue? 12 years. Isn't that interesting? that the, the, the woman with the bleeding problem had been suffering with it as long as that child had been alive? Twelve years. So Jesus has been approached by a guy named Jairus. Who is Jairus? Well, Jairus is the Greek form of the name Jairus. Um, that, that won't mean much to you. It's a name that could mean either he gives light or he will awaken. That's interesting. Jair is the Hebrew name. Jairus is the Greek name. And it's a name that may mean he will awaken. And when you consider the context of the story, that's a fascinating name for this father. Jair is a name that appears a few times in the Old Testament, most notably with one of the judges just so you have some context for the the name, and and you'll see it in the Old Testament in a few passages. But the most important thing about Jairus is that he is identified as one of the rulers of the synagogue. A ruler of the synagogue uh, may be a reference to a group of elders who were responsible for all the activities in the synagogue. Uh, You can go to Acts chapter 13 and verse 15, and there we're told that the rulers of the synagogue invited Paul and Barnabas to preach to those who were present. At that particular synagogue in Pisidian Antioch, um, so it appears that the rulers of the synagogue were this were the group of men who oversaw the activities within that synagogue. And we we know from Acts chapter eighteen that that uh, the the Corinthian synagogue had more than one um, ruler within it. Uh, there was Crispus who in verse 8 of Acts 18 believed in the Lord together with his entire household. But then in the same chapter, there's mention of Sosthenes, who was seized by the Jews and beaten in front of the city's tribunal because the pro-council of Achaia refused to hear the case against Paul. So anyway, you had two in the same chapter in reference to this, the city of Corinth. So it seems they were, there was a plurality involved in local synagogues of these, of these uh, Jewish elders who would oversee the affairs of that synagogue. And Jairus is one of them. Now, think of the significance of that. Jesus has been driven out of synagogues before. Jesus has uh, uh, had issues in synagogues before. Now we've got one of the guys who's an authority figure over this local synagogue, which, se- which could possibly be Capernaum's synagogue, and he's actually seeking Jesus out. This, this guy is going to be a, a man of high standing within that society within that Jewish culture. And what is unique about Jairus' approach to Jesus? Well, the very first thing is that he fell at Jesus' feet. Now, this is a significant detail since rulers of the synagogues were important and highly respected persons. Just like the woman with the bleeding issue, Jairus is approaching Jesus in a way that demonstrates faith. Now, the woman with the bleeding problems, faith was, hey, I don't have to have his attention, so I'm going to come up with, behind him, and it's still go- I'm still going to get healed. Jairus is approaching with a faith more out of de- that, that, that demonstrates his desperation. His, his, he's approaching Jesus and falling down at his feet, and that is the language of bowing down in worship. That's the language of giving reference. That terminology indicates that when Jairus came to Jesus, he's acknowledging something about Jesus. This is the same terminology used in reference to the story we stated last week, the the garrison demoniac. When Legion approached Jesus and reacted to Jesus, he fell at Jesus' feet too. And so Jairus' attitude toward Jesus, it contrasts sharply with that of other rulers of, of synagogues such as uh, in the scribes and the Pharisees, the, his reaction, his approach to Jesus is different than other people in his position because he's approaching Jesus with a reverence that they don't have. And when you re- look at the text, you also find out that he's going to implore Jesus. He's begging Jesus, saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. Implicit within these words is Jairus' assumption that Jesus needed to make physical contact with his daughter in order to heal her. This is a little different than that centurion who said, hey, you ain't got to come to my house, just say the word. But it doesn't mean that Jairus lacked faith. Jairus has still come to Jesus out of faith. And it may be, if he's from Capernaum, that he's seen Jesus heal and he's seen Jesus heal by touch like that leper who approached Jesus in Capernaum. So he's approaching Jesus out of faith because he believes his daughter's dying and he believes Jesus can stave off death. So he's approaching in faith because he's willing to revere Jesus He he believes Jesus can do something about his daughter's condition. And what's unique about Jesus' response? first thing that stood out to me is that Jesus will tell this guy to believe. His full statement in Luke's account, Luke chapter 8 and verse 50 is, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. Now here's what's interesting to me about that. This response of Jesus, it comes after two significant things in the story. First, Jesus responds with this instruction to believe after he has effortlessly healed the woman with the bleeding problem. And as we mentioned a moment ago, to that woman he said, daughter, your faith has made you well. Who is Jairus petitioning Jesus to heal? his daughter. Could it be that when Jesus spoke to the woman with the bleeding problem, he was ultimately also speaking to Jairus? Daughter, your faith has made you well. And just a couple of verses later, he's going to be turning to Jairus and saying, don't fear, just believe, and your daughter will be well. It's also interesting that Jesus' don't fear, only believe statement comes after a messenger from Jairus' house appears on the scene and says, daughter is dead, don't trouble the teacher anymore. What's interesting is that messenger conveys a theology that was prevalent in that society, and that is that a healer such as Jesus can do something while the person's still alive, but can't do anything once that person has died. And so in in this messenger's eyes and in most people's eyes, it was pointless for Jesus to continue on because he can't do anything now that she's dead. You have to remember, there's not been that many resurrections at this point. The Old Testament has very few. Jesus will perform three or four. You have Jairus' daughter, who I believe is going to be the first. Then you'll have the widow of Nain's son, and then of course you're going to have Lazarus, the most famous, and of course Jesus is going to resurrect himself as well as others at his, uh, his death. There will be some come out of the tombs. But attributing those last two to Jesus or, or God, you kind of got to play with that a little bit. But there's not been that many people brought back to life. In the Old Testament you can remember Elijah doing it but there's not that many cases of it. And so they these people don't believe that, that Jesus has the power to do something that re- reverses death. And Jesus is telling this father, "Don't be afraid. Just believe." Even though the father has already heard that his daughter's dead. And the next thing that's interesting to me is that Jesus is going to claim that this child is sleeping. His full statement in Mark chapter 5 verse 39 was you making a commotion and weeping, the child is not dead but sleeping. This statement was directed not not specifically at the father but to the crowd of people who were gathered around the house and were told in verse 38 of Mark 5 that they were weeping and yelling loudly. They were in a a state of mourning and grief, and they're making this commotion is the language Mark would use. And Jesus arrives on the scene and sees all these people bawling their eyes out, crying out in loud voices, and and he says, why? She's not dead, she's sleeping. And it's interesting that Jesus would use this language. The text makes it clear she did die. It's not like Jesus believes she's not dead. When Jesus says she's sleeping, he's not not saying, oh, her her prognosis is different than your assessment. Or or her diagnosis is different than your assessment, I should say. That's that's not what he's indicating. He's indicating that what she has succumbed to is not permanent. That's his point. What she has succumbed to is temporary. It can be reversed by me. And they don't believe that yet. They they don't understand that yet. But that's why he's referring to her as sleeping. It's not because he doesn't think she died. It's because he's got the power over death. It is interesting, too, that when you journey through the New Testament, one of the terminologies most associated with death is sleep. Because even for you and I, Jesus isn't here on the scene to bring us back from the dead right now. But in the long term, in the eternal plan, death is only temporary. Because there is eternal life still to be had for those who are faithful. And Jesus is, excuse me, and in the New Testament, that language of sleep is used because death is not necessarily permanent. Stand. Yes, you, you, you read my notes. He's referring to John chapter 11 verses 11 through 16 because the disciples don't understand. When he says that Lazarus is sleeping, they're like, well then, they don't want to go to Bethany at that stage in his, his, in his ministry when Lazarus dies. They don't want to go because Jesus is a hunted man and Bethany's two miles outside of Jerusalem. They know if they go to, go to Bethany, they're getting close to Jerusalem and Jesus' life is at risk. So they don't want him to go. Lazarus is sleeping. Okay, then let's not go. He'll wake up. Then Jesus has to specifically say, no, 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 he's dead. And I'm glad he's dead because Jesus, Jesus goes on to say, because it's going to be for your benefit. And then Thomas, in his weird way, says, well, let's all go die with him. You know, they're confused. They don't get it. Same thing's happening here. Jesus speaks about um, this girl being dead. And how does the crowd react to that? What does the text say the crowd did when they heard Jesus say this? Ridiculed him or laughed at him. This is significant. Have you ever been ridiculed or laughed at? Jesus knows what it's like to be laughed at. This is just another way in which we can look at the life of Jesus and go, he knows what it's like to be me. He knows what it's like to be on the the side of being mocked and ridiculed and made fun of, because that's what's happening right here. Now, the other thing as we continue through the story of Jairus' daughter is that Jesus arrives on the scene, says she's just sleeping, and then he limits how many people he's going to let into the room when he performs this miracle. I'm always fascinated by this. Because think about how many miracles are just done out in the open where anybody could see it. But this one, this is the first time we're going to read about only three apostles being involved in a situation. He's only going to let Peter, James, and John go in. Now, Peter, James, and John are going to be the only ones to witness the transfiguration. They're going to be the only ones who separate with him in the Garden of Gethsemane for prayer. They get some unique experiences, and this is the first time that's recorded. Why Jesus, in this moment, said, I only want James, John, and, and, and Peter going, we don't know. Don't know. We do get a sense of why he limited anybody else. We are told that this woman's father and mother were allowed to go in as well. The rest of the crowd had to stay outside. I imagine they had to stay outside because they didn't have faith. They just laughed at him when he said she's sleeping. They didn't have faith. Jesus had just healed this woman with the bleeding issue and said her faith had made her well, and now he's walking into a situation where there's an absence of faith. He's not letting that absence of faith come in the room. Of course, he may have limited the number as well because he's about about to bring a 12-year-old back to life. These, These individuals in this room are about to witness something incredible, something that nobody's witnessed before. If you watch somebody come back from the dead, what's going to be your reaction? <laughs> I mean, you're going you're to be shocked, and you're going to— everybody's focus and attention is going to be on that person, and it's going to be overwhelming for a 12-year-old girl coming back to life. Maybe Jesus is being somewhat practical and saying, we don't need to have a big crowd in this room because it'll be overwhelming for her. I mean, think about what—as soon as she comes back to life, what does Jesus say? Hey, get her something to eat. Can you be more practical than that? Yeah, yeah. She just came back from the dead. She needs some food. She needs some nourishment. Get her something to eat. Maybe Jesus is simply being practical here, but maybe he's also concerned about whether or not the people in this room have faith. So I don't know all the answers as to why he limited the apostles. I think there's some some good reasons as to why he limited um, the parents and the the other individuals present. The other thing that happens here is that Jesus' charges the parents to keep this resurrection a secret. This isn't the first time Jesus has done that and said, hey, don't tell anybody. Uh, He did that with the the, the leper that he healed in Capernaum. There there are some individuals where he would say, keep this to yourself. And this is the case here with this uh, this 12-year-old girl being brought back to life. Being that this is Jesus' first resurrection, maybe maybe this is a situation where he doesn't want that getting out in the sense of being the headline that everybody reads about. Because what's the first thing that's going to happen as soon as people hear that Jesus brought somebody back from the dead? Hey, hey, can you get my grandmother? Hey, 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 can, 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 you, can you come get my, my dog? You know, can, what, what's going to happen when people find out Jesus can bring somebody back from the dead? They're going to start making requests. And that's not why Jesus was here. Jesus did bring people back from the dead. Jesus did heal people, but his primary objective was not to perform signs and to be a miracle worker on demand. And oftentimes when he limited people from being able to talk about what he did, it's so that it doesn't detract from what he came to do. So Jesus's whole response to this situation is unique. We've got a few minutes left, and we've kind of done an overview of both stories, and now what I want to do is just point out four things that are significant about these two stories. Why these matter, and 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 something we can take away for ourselves. First thing I want you to notice is that these healings demonstrate Jesus's compassion for women and children. We're dealing with a culture and a time where women and children were viewed as commodities. Men... Had wives so that they would have somebody to bear children for them, and they had children so that they could uh, have a have a reputation, so that they could have a name, that sort of thing. They were commodities. And here are two stories where Jesus demonstrates that he cares as much about the woman with the bleeding issue and the twelve-year-old girl as he does anyone else. There is compassion here for these these people who are normally pushed on the periphery. And Jesus cared about them just as much as anyone. I think another thing you need to notice about this story is that these healings involve the reversal of uncleanness. So the woman with the bleeding problem, Leviticus chapter 15, goes into detail as to why she was unclean. The uh, uh, Iris' daughter having died, death is considered Considered unclean. In other words, you come in contact with a dead person, you're unclean. And so what Jesus does here is he reverses unclean states, whether it be the bleeding issue or, the, or de- being deceased. It shows that Jesus's there, theres a metaphor here that Jesus' ultimate work is to make clean that which is unclean. And you and I are very unclean. Before, we, before we're washed in the blood of Jesus. What Jesus did at Calvary, his death and resurrection, was the ultimate reversal of uncleanness, because it was the way in which sin, that which taints us, is removed. It's Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection accomplished the ultimate cleansing. And the when we look at these two stories and see this uh, emphasis on that reversal, it reminds me of what Jesus ultimately came to do. Third thing I want to mention is that these two miracles, these healings, point to Jesus' subjugation of the fall's consequences. What I mean is when you go back to the Garden of Eden, the first sin brought about the consequences of a fallen world, which included death and which included disease. The Garden of Eden knew nothing of death or disease. But once mankind was kicked out of the garden, death and disease became a part of life. And here's Jesus having control over disease and then having control over death. It's showing that he is superior to both. It's showing showing that he has power over both. It's showing... That disease and death don't have to be feared the way they once did, because he's in control. And even though we're going to succumb to disease and death in our lives, in the grand scheme, the big scheme, the big picture, in the eternal kingdom, death and disease aren't part of the equation anymore. When you read about New heavens and the new earth. There's no, disease and there's, no de- there's no disease and there's no death there. That's the ultimate subjugation of those consequences of the fall. And one final thought. These healings stressed the importance of faith. Whether we're talking about the woman with the bleeding issue who had the faith to, to touch Jesus, or we're talking about Jairus who demonstrated the faith to follow Jesus even though he knew his daughter had died. These healings centered around faith. And we don't need to underestimate the importance of faith in our own lives in believing that Jesus can do anything in believing that he does have the power over everything, we need to see in these two stories a message for ourselves and for our own personal faith. So when we journey through this, the, these two intertwined stories, there's so much that they collectively bring out for us, and they have a, a tremendous significance in the account of Jesus' life. That's why they appear in, in three out of the four Gospels. I hear that bell, and that brings us to the end of our time. Let me uh, close out with a quick word of prayer and then we'll dismiss. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus' conquest. His conquest of death and disease. We thank you, Lord, for the eternal kingdom that we can be a part of and for the eternal rest that can be ours. Lord, we pray that you will help us, help us to have faith like the characters in this story and help us to uh, trust in you help us to follow you, Lord. We um, we know that we have been unclean at times, and we thank you that your Son can cleanse us of our sins. And we ask for your help in maintaining that purity to the best of our ability. And may we never may we never take for granted what what Jesus has done for us, and may we live to honor that. It is through his name that we offer this prayer.